welcome to AARC Perspectives, where we talk with members of the respiratory care community and learn about their experiences caring for patients and building the profession. I'm Heather Wilden, Communications Manager for the American Association for Respiratory Care, and will serve as your host for today's episode. Since 1947, the AARC has been leading the effort to advance the respiratory care profession and promote high-quality, cost-effective, patient-centric respiratory care. The respiratory care profession is ever-growing and evolving thanks to dedicated respiratory therapists around the world. In today's episode, we're looking back at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and talking with Alicia Wafer out of Detroit, Michigan. Alicia, welcome to the podcast. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So I have been a respiratory therapist for... 30, going on 38 years, which is kind of wild because I look so young. And I am the director of respiratory therapy at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. Work with an awesome group of people. Uh, We are an urban setting here. So we're in Detroit, trauma, level one trauma center. We do transplants, 850 some beds. Quarter of those are ICU. It's a happening place. I'm married, have four children that are grown and have a couple grandbabies. So that's me. And I love this field because we do great things. Nice. That sounds wonderful. It sounds like you've had quite the career. You know, how would you say, how are RTs vital to the healthcare system? RTs are vital to our healthcare system. Absolutely. On a national level, on a local level, on a personal level. I myself am an asthmatic. I've often said that most people don't know what an RT is. A respiratory therapist is unless they've needed one. Mm-hmm. And then they are very acutely aware of who we are and what we do up until COVID. With COVID and this being a respiratory illness, we have come more into the forefront, kind of out of the shadows. We were always the, the hardworking, in the background, collaborative people, which we still are, but now people know we're there. So it's kind of interesting. So we're, we're the backbone of patients with pulmonary illness on a, um, on a home care basis, in an acute setting, in a hospital, which is where I work. There is so much that we do and variety that anybody with asthma, chronic bronchitis, COPD, lung transplants, we do such a broad range of stuff. It's really very, very cool. So I think we are, we are a minority, but a very important minority. Yeah, well, it sounds like you guys do a lot of um, really cool things. I'm glad that you started to touch on that. So if we're kind of thinking about the kind of the motivation to enter the profession, um, I feel like a lot of people have talked about, you know, the calling to serve, you know, that that's a, a kind of a, an important component to being a respiratory therapist. So how would you say being an RT is kind of satisfying that, that need or that feel? And then perhaps in particular with the pandemic. So let me start a long time ago when I went in RT. I was introduced to the field by my volleyball coach. And I was one of these people that hated the concept of sitting still. I needed to be in motion all the time. That made me happy. But I was also a science nerd. I liked science. I liked math. And so how do you put these two together? Because you think 
a science lab with beakers and all these breakable things, that is not where I should live, right? So I like the activity level, the intensity, the fact that you could pull in science and physics and help people all at the same time. It was just a win-win for me. And so I think that if people want to help others and they were like me, where you like to be in motion, I think it's an excellent field for you. Taking that, the didactic component, the physics component, all of those are very, very important to understand the workings of the human body and the gas laws and and how we can help others and put that all together. It's a great place. The other thing is, is that you can start and with an associate's degree at many community colleges, they have programs in place. And so that was the other piece. I needed to make money. So I, I needed to get there as soon as possible. Working in a restaurant is great, but that wasn't what I wanted to do long term. And so I was able to go to school, work as an extern or restaurant assistant, learn more about my field while I was doing that and graduate in a couple years with my associate's degree, get registered and then start making some decent money and then look at moving on into the future. 38 years ago, I was going to be a restaurant therapist till I figured out what else I was going to do and then found that I just loved it. And there's so much you can do. So it just gives you some flexibility. It's not that I don't, I love nurses. I have a daughter that's a nurse. I have great friends that are nurses, but nursing is not something I wanted to do. The ideal of that just didn't work for me. But being an RT is very cool. Using your brain and getting in there and being able to uh, deal with people that need help, that you can, in your own focus, be able to look at their case and figure out what's going on and work with the docs and the mid-levels and try and figure out how to make somebody do better. Like there is nothing like that. To see a little tiny baby that you can help get off a ventilator so that they can be held by their mom or even these little micro preemies that you can help them to be able to kangaroo care with their mom and still be on a vent, like unheard of, but it's just so cool. You can work with little, little guys, you can work with pediatrics, you can work with adults, just a really cool field. There are a lot of opportunities in the profession, which is wonderful. And going a little further into that, um, into this subject about, you know, working with patients and, and just really, you know, satisfying that. How have you seen that transition during the pandemic? So pandemic, you asked a question on your list that you had us prep for um, related to hot spots. Well, it was pretty hot in Detroit area back in March. So we went, we just kind of launched right in um, and we didn't know a lot, right? It came from China, Italy, New York and Detroit kind of got hit in boom, boom. And so we were working with our colleagues in other hospitals, like therapists from New York, you know, managers and therapists from our local U of M Beaumont, other systems as well to figure out like what's going on, who's doing what well, that kind of thing, and what can we learn from each other. We took that information, collaborated with our physician teams, and we're doing the same thing to figure out what are we going to do. And as a team, so we do something called a huddle at the start of each shift. And so I would come in and talk to my team for the start of that shift, and my managers and shift leaders would do the same. So we were all in there, and each day, 
things are changing rapidly. You know, you're, you're getting more information. The most important thing for us is A, how do we take care of that patient? Huge, absolutely. The other thing that is hugely important, especially me as the RT director is, how do I take care of my people? Like, how do I make sure our therapists aren't being removed from the equation because we put them in a situation where they get sick themselves? And COVID had so many unknowns and it got to the point where like we changed a lot of what we do to include, include that PPE on the front end or personal protective equipment. So we have the cool masks and the head things that come down and that. And so, you know, we talked about that in our huddles and we said, you protect you first. You take 15 seconds, 30 seconds, whatever it takes to get your gown, your glove, your mask, your hat on and then go in because that 30 seconds isn't going to make that patient do any better per se. But when you get in there and you can focus completely on that patient because you're safe, that's hugely important. And we were a lot of times those first people in the room because we were respiratory therapists before there were rapid response teams. We were the rapid response team. We were there, that first person in. And so being there and talking to patients when they're scared, because you're in a room and everybody's coming in looking like you're a hazmat thing, right? And the therapists are the ones at the head. So we're talking to the patient's ears, letting them know. And, you know, it's a little muffled through a mask kind of thing. But we're letting them know, hey, we're here to help. You know, this is what's going on. That kind of thing, because we're the first one in. And so that direct patient care remained. And in fact, in a lot of cases, we were in the room a lot more often than other caregivers. Our nursing teams could figure out how they could take the IV pumps themselves out of the room by adding tubing and being able to check all their stuff. But you couldn't do that with a ventilator, right? You needed to be close enough to the patient to make sure everything was going well. So while others still weren't going in the room as often, we, we a lot of times were the only ones in the room. And so that direct patient care remained in a weird kind of setting, for lack of a better, better way to put it. It was way different than it's ever been. But I'll tell you, our therapists here just rocked it. They did a great job. They were in there. I heard tremendous feedback from physicians, mid-levels, nurses, how much they appreciated us like being there, helping them to drive the care of these patients and what made sense and this is what we're hearing and how are we doing this. So hopefully I answered your question. Yeah, no, you did. I think it follows into my next question. And you may have already touched on some of these, but I think it's it's definitely fine to kind of fall back on them. How did the pandemic challenge your skills? So back in the day when I got out of RT school was pre-microprocessor. Right. So before the ventilators could do all the bells and whistles they did, we had to think through how things worked. I feel like during this pandemic, some of that had to happen again. Not that people don't think, don't get me wrong, but there's a level of what just happens and and what you have to think below. Like, you don't always think like, how does the microprocessor work and how is the ventilator making that happen? Is it piston driven? You don't think about those things. Right. Well, we had to start thinking about things like gas flows and and where might we put a viral filter? And we, uh, Mark Stranati, one of our, um, our clinical specialists, created something I called filterology. And we all got a huge education on filters. We use them every day. But what is a bacterial filter? And when does it become a viral filter? And when is it actually a HEPA filter? Not just for your vacuum cleaners. So 
the 99.9999, that fourth nine makes it a HEPA filter. Who knew, right? So we, we had to write down what each of those filters were, where we needed to place them, and that it, in the ventilator circuit or the non-invasive circuit, and how do, how do we do that so that you're not shooting a, it's called viral shed. So when the COVID, somebody's got COVID and they're shedding that pathogen, how do we protect others that are nearby? Because our, the flow going through our ventilators is pretty tremendous and then it just blows right on out. So yes, they're in an isolation room, but you're going into that isolation room, the door opens and closes. How many feet do you need to be? How, where do you place these filters? All of those kinds of things we had to stop and think about again. It, any, everything we knew we questioned. So, okay, we're going to do this. Well, are we sure that we are as safe as we possibly can be? And so we ourselves, there were times we made decisions in our huddle with the group. I'm like, okay, guys and gals, this is what we got going on. I need to make a decision. Go. And be like, you want us to answer that? I'm like, yeah, give me your feedback. You guys are the boots on the ground. Tell me what you think. I know what I think as a therapist, but I'm not in those COVID rooms. You're in those COVID rooms. And so we made decisions like that as we went through. So, and a lot of my people are very, very well read. And so they're looking to the journals, they're looking to articles. Now, COVID is the, the factor we don't have, but the rest of the stuff we knew or used to know, and we had to like dig that out, blow off the textbooks, not just ask Dr. Google, but figure that out. We enlisted our educators and networking, networking is huge. And so we had folks like our education people for the colleges who are now, they're furloughed. They're not working at the colleges. And they're like, what can we do to help? We feel terrible. Well, they were our research department, right? I would call up Nick Prush from U of M, Flint, and say, Nick, I need to know everything about this. And he'd say, cool, I'll get back with you. And then he would. And so that was really nice having them people that you had networked with over the years, you'd watched grow up from the little little early college student on up or the, the restory student that came through your department to now heads of things. And everybody was willing to help because it all made it better. Everybody wanted to help. So, so enlisting that network or that village, so to speak, restory therapy is a very small group but very broadly spread. And so by networking with other people and networking with our own people, it pushed us to think harder, to look at all the ask, to take a step back and go, did we think about everything we could think about to keep that patient as safe as possible, ourselves and our coworkers as safe as possible? Simply transporting a patient changed. Like, how do we do that? safely. And our docs were great because we're like, hey, if we don't got to go somewhere with a COVID patient, let's not do that. And they were, uh, my medical director, there were a couple things that came up with relation to APRV or bi-level or other things. And um, he had said, okay, we're going to do this and we're not doing these things. And uh, one or two of the therapists is like, why? We know what we're doing with that. And he said, yes, but the evidence does not support that there is any value to that. And if we do that, that means you're going in and out of that patient room multiple times. And we don't want that. Not for you, not for the patient. So we want to get our patients stable and we want to help them get through this so that we can get them off the vents later. But this, you know, the in and out of the rooms has got to stop, you know, down one of peep, up one of peep, 
Like, that's just silly at this point. We need to look at how do we optimally oxygenate? How do we optimally ventilate? And then give them some time. And so there were really cool conversations that were taking place where we all had to stop and think. And I got to tell you, we had some, we were writing policies in rapid speed. Like I couldn't believe it. We had system policy. We have a five hospital system. Anybody that knows writing a hospital policy that in fact it impacts other departments sometimes takes years. If nothing else, months, we're doing stuff in 24 hours on a system level because everybody was on it. Like everybody was on, we're talking about this at this time. Everybody got the thing. Everybody was, we're on conference calls because you know, you're socially distancing. We're on conference calls, but it's like, okay, here's what we know. What is the evidence to support? What do you guys think? Anybody All right, done like 24 hours. It's online and ready to go unheard of. So the, the level of networking, the level of thought, the enlisting our vendors even, we had to say, okay, so we're not getting this in. What do you have? We need, to, we need to function. Our patients need equipment. What do we, what can we do? What alternatives and what kind of things can you add? So if nothing else, the thought that went into the last five months was insane. It, it was no longer just, I come into work, you know, I make my coffee, I, I sit down, I get, I, I get the huddle, and then I go to report and whatever, and I just kind of go through the motions. No, because nothing was normal. Nothing mm-hmm. was the same. And so it tested every aspect of what we do, whether it was from the bedside therapist or even our externs. We have people who are in our T-school working in our lab and doing equipment, we had one lady, I called her my Christmas present. Like she, she was getting furloughed or they said, you know, we're, we're closing up shop, so to speak, in the outpatient area. I worked there 10 years ago. What can I do? And after having her for a bet, we kind of took in the inventory and realized having her be our person would kind of do laps, so to speak. So she would go through the units, pull any equipment that didn't need to get pulled that wasn't being used and centrally located, clean it up, get it ready to go. It was awesome that that level of all in for everybody. So sorry, I, I may have gone off on a tangent. I felt pretty passionate about that, but it was really very cool. Yeah, no, you are totally fine. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for your, the tangents. It's all good. That was one thing I definitely saw during, you know, the, the major pandemic time is just the like the increased collaboration that we saw in the RT community was was wonderful. And and I know also, I think it sounded like there was also increased collaboration cross-departmentally, you know, working with the different caregivers as well, in addition to your team. So I'm glad that you touched on that. But, you know, you kind of talked about challenging of your skills. Are there any new skills that you either learned or, you know, kind of gained a new outlook as you pivoted this year with regard to the pandemic? Couple things. One is I learned to focus on what is important because we get so distracted by the noise that sometimes we lose sight of what is important. So very often I find myself saying, okay, so what is the point here? Like, where do we want to go? And then how do we get there? Right? So I tended to pride myself previously at being a multitasker. 
And that wasn't necessarily a good thing, I realized. I needed to focus on what was important, right? And so looking at it from that, I think I mentioned my medical director would say things like, yes, we could do that. However, what's important is that our people are safe and our patients are cared for in the best way possible. So yeah, we could try that, but that means we don't have a guarantee of success based on evidence and we're putting our people back and forth in the room more often, which puts them more in harm's way. Not that we didn't go in, the room, in and out of the rooms. We did, and we did what we needed to do, but excess, right? So that, that laser focus, I found myself during this pandemic becoming more and more focused. The other thing was, is I learned to ask deeper questions. Back to the focus thing, I found that people were asking questions, but they the answer they wanted wasn't to the question they were asking, right? And so I remembered, and it it kind of, it was like that lobster in a pod thing. It kind of occurred to me with relation to um, aerosol generating procedures, right? So I'd have people say to me, is a nasal cannula a high flow? And I'd say, which kind? And they'd say, uh... Oh, you know, and I would like the elevator door would open and I would have an infection control specialist on there saying, oh, Alicia, good to see you. I wanted to know, is, is, a, is a salter high flow, a high flow, or is a non-rebreather a high flow? And I'd be like, <laughs> I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what? I like all day long this happened. And finally, I realized that what people wanted to know wasn't whether or not something was a high flow or even whether or not it generated aerosol, but how can I keep my people safe caring for that patient and everybody around them? And so that's what took me to Nick and saying, Nick, I need help with this. Can you make me a list of what everything is and hit these items? What is a high flow? What is actually considered a high flow? What is a high flow that is aerosol generating? And then we translated that in the last column to what mask do I use going in the room? Which was the answer to the question everybody wanted, but nobody asked that question because they were so focused on, is it a high flow, isn't it a high flow, that kind of thing. And so I learned this, if I get a question more than once, I realize I have to go back to say, what do you really wanna know? And because it doesn't sound like that's the answer you need. I can answer these questions or get you the answers to these questions that you want. But what is it you really need to know? And it, back to that, what is it, the Maslow's needs, right? We want to we wanna know that our, we're safe. Like we want to take it down to that basic and how are my people safe? Well, If you have this, then you can wear this mask. If you have this, then you wear that mask. And what point do you change masks and what is higher and what is lower? Kind of like I told my staff, anytime you walk into a room, don't wonder if a patient's COVID or not, gown up, just do. Then you focus on them. You don't focus on, oh, I don't, you know, they said this patient was not COVID and then, you know, you walk out of the room and they're like, ah, it's crazy, right? We're going to do a, we're going to do a test. Cause at the beginning tests were not so easy to find. And sometimes it took five days to get them back. And now they got the rapid stuff, but then it was not that way. And that's not like years ago, we're talking months ago. And so what people wanted to know was, am I safe? And so those are the two big things. One is focus, 
right? Focus on what is important. And then two, finding out what you truly want to know, not necessarily the questions you're asking me. I'll be happy. I, I start like that. I'll answer anything you want that within reason and legal, but I want to know what you really want because otherwise you walk away and you really haven't had your questions answered. So that was, that was a big thing for me. And when I figured that out, it made my life a lot less aggravating because I kept thinking, why do people keep asking me these questions? And then I figured it out. You, I know, already kind of talked about this, what it was like working in a hotspot since you are, you, you're Detroit and that was essentially a hotspot. So like I said, I know you already touched on it, but if there's anything more you want to discuss. So it was fantastic and terrifying at the same time, if that's possible. There was an air of surreal, like, am I going to wake up? This is going to be a dream. Like, is this really happening? Because we would walk in. I mean, nowhere in your wildest dreams did you think you would walk in and get screened, right? So we walk in our doors. And still today, you walk in, you, we have a face screener. You put your face in front of it, takes your temperature, lights up green. You then have to ask to speak to the screener who says any symptoms, and they have a list of them, and if no symptoms, and then you can go in. If you have a temperature, eh, you get bounced, right? So nobody comes to work sick. It's just different, right? And, and trying to figure out, like, uh, our, our chief nursing officer, Gwen Nam, said it at the very beginning. She said, okay, this is like building a plane while we are flying it. Right. And that was true because we were we're in the thick of things. We're evidence based practice. Right. Restorative therapists are very evidence based. And so we had to remember that during this pandemic, that anything was evidence based. But some of the stuff we didn't have any evidence to base it on. We didn't know. And so we would come in. And I have to tell you, the outpouring by the community was amazing it was just so fantastic like came in one day there's signs all over the lawn thank you that and people have just been so helpful our dietary department one day called and said hey you guys want pizza i'm like is that even a question sure we'll take pizza so i called everybody and i'm like hey there's pizza in the department so people filtered their way down when it came time to grabbing something to eat it was it was surreal in that Walls went up that weren't there before. So here we're an urban center. I think I told you that our building is a hundred years old in some places. And so some of our areas, we have these huge, like we have a bed on this side and a wall and a bed on this side, and then a curtain and a curtain. And in the middle is like basically a bathroom, but with just curtain walls right between the two. So those, we put up plastic walls and doors so that we could make them separate rooms to be able to enter and exit because we went up our volume went up to like probably 30 30 higher than i had ever seen here at our absolute peak like we blew way past our absolute peak and so just walking into an icu room or an icu unit was so much different we had tables set up so that you could go in. So you, it was called donning and doffing. So you're putting your stuff on. And then when you came out, how you took your stuff off and what you discarded and what you reprocessed and where there were stations all along the way set up. These rooms had plastic walls and 
our staff actually were using the like the white marker board type things to write ventilator settings and IV things right there. So you walked up to a patient room, you knew what that patient was on, you knew what they were going to be doing, that kind of thing. So even just the physical landscape was so different. You walked around after people became afraid to come to the hospitals, especially here. And so I, I used to joke that some of our general patient care floors, after people had gotten discharged, we weren't, you know, we weren't doing the outpatient surgeries anymore, the inpatient surgeries where it's the 23-hour stay or the, the short-term stays. And so there were whole units that were just bare and empty. And it was so weird because this is like a living, breathing place that's got people everywhere. Walking through our lobbies, which are huge, and seeing no one was bizarre. I'm like, is this midnight? Like, because during the day, it's hustle, bustle, people walking, wheelchairs. Nobody. There was nobody. It was so strange. It was just kind of like, you might be too young for the Twilight Zone. It was like a Twilight Zone episode, right? You walk into the hospital, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, and you don't see anyone, It was so odd. Now, you go into the ICUs, everybody, all the essential people were there taking care of patients. The visitors, the complete lack of visitors because of the protection that was needed for the patients as well as the staff and not allowing visitors in, those visitor waiting room areas or whatever, staging areas, were completely empty and closed and dark. So it was just so odd. For lack of a better way to put it, it was just really odd. Again, we're a big place. We're used to people here all the time, and they weren't here, except in the ICUs, right? And we converted several units to ICU units that had been ICU back, back, back in the day and still have the components, and so they became ICUs again because we needed to add ICU beds, right? We didn't just have them, so we converted a lot of our general patient cares into ICU beds. And it was just, I don't even know how to describe it. I did want to interject. I am a huge Twilight Zone fan. Um, So (laughs) what I'm talking about. Yes, I totally know what you're talking about. Uh, But yeah, and I can only imagine that it would definitely be just a weird feeling where you had the hustle and bustle and then all of a sudden no hustle and bustle. And it's like, hmm, this is a little different. After kind of working in this pandemic setting, and, you know, and knowing the idea of, you know, you're going to have new RTs who are, you know, graduating and they're going to basically be starting kind of in this new world. And then, of course, you have potential future RTs, you know, potential future students and, and things of that nature. Is there any type of advice or kind of tip to remember that you'd like to kind of offer to those RTs? It's interesting because I asked my leadership team, I met with my managers yesterday and I asked them a few questions. And one of the things that they said with the motivation to be an RT, which I think is speaking to this again, is that for us in our setting, regardless of diagnosis, regardless of why you came or what happened to you before, we're going to do our absolute best for you. So if you're thinking of becoming an RT, do the work, learn, put yourself out there and learn everything you can learn. And when you see a therapist, and I, I've said this before, when you see a therapist, you go, wow, 
they seem so smart. They, they work so well with other people and I see their patients doing well. Find those people and emulate them. Ask them, how do you do this? And, and you just have to, you have to just dig in and work. This isn't something you just take a typing class and then you type. This is not that, right? Respiratory therapists are very hands-on people, but there is that huge didactic component and that thirst for what's, what's new. We can't live where we were. If that was the case, 38 years ago when I graduated, I would have just stopped learning. I learned something new every day. So if you want to be in a field where you can continue to learn and grow, this is it. Right. And you want to you want to do the work you want to learn. You want to put yourself out there. This is your place. Get yourself a good mentor. Find a person and do the work yourself and be out. You know what I'm saying? So that that's probably my best advice to someone. Perfect. Well, we have come to the end of the question. So unless there's anything more you want to share, I think we are good. You were fabulous. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I'm very passionate about our field. I love it. I love what we do. I love the impact we have. The fact that people don't do this for accolades. We do this because it's who we are and what we do, right? It's real easy to let it get to you. Like sometimes with COVID, one of the things we didn't talk about is when you have multiple deaths, right? You have patients, you've done everything you can possibly do, and your, your docs and everybody's like, and, and they die anyway. A patient dies anyway. Well, there's only two things that are true that will happen to every person. You're going to die and pay taxes. And I try to, I always say, I try to avoid both. So we have to realize that patients do die regardless of what we do, right? With COVID, because of the intensity level, we saw a lot more of that in a shorter amount of time. We saw huge amounts of successes, and we had to make sure that we shared those successes. The music in a lot of patient places, uh, here we did, if somebody did well and went home, music played, right? That was cool because you're like, okay. And then you started to hear the music all the time. And it's like, all right. So you may have a couple patients die on your shift and it, and you go, okay. And then you, you keep going, but it does, it, it wears on you. So you got to make sure you're taking care of yourself with that self-care, but also realize all the good that we do as well. And so I think that's an intensity level that people don't always understand. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks for listening to AARC Perspectives. Be sure to check our show notes page for information about today's episode and be the first to know when our next episode airs by subscribing to our podcast. Until next time, my friends, keep on supporting the respiratory therapy profession.